We finished chapter 23 last week. Now, turn back with me to the beginning of this section. Turn with me to uh, chapter 22, verse 20, to kind of set the foundation if you weren't here last week. Chapter 22, verse 20, starts a new section of Proverbs. And the New American Standard Bible says, Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge? Now, there's differences of interpretation as to how that word excellent things is translated. NAS went with excellent. Other translations go with 30 sayings. How many of your Bibles say 30 sayings of wisdom? How many say excellent sayings? Raise your hand. Okay. Um, other translations use 30 sayings. And I actually believe, after I've studied this, that 30 sayings of wisdom is the better translation because it could be translated that way. And in the same day and time, there were 30 sayings of Egyptian wisdom that were out there that were written by an Egyptian man named Aminimopi. Aminimopi. Nice name, right? And scholars believe that, that the Hebrews put together 30 sayings of godly wisdom as a counterbalance to the Egyptian wisdom. They're, as if they were saying, okay, you pagan, ungodly Egyptians, you have your wisdom, but we are the people of God. We have some wisdom from him that we want to put together, that we want to share. And so I think 30 sayings of wisdom is the, is the better uh, way to translate that because if you look at the next few sections, you, it divides evenly into 30 statements, 30 sayings, uh, going through the end of chapter 24. So we began those 30 sayings of wisdom. Last week, we got through number 18. Is that right? We get through number 18 last week? This week, we'll start in number 19. Number 19. We're just going through each statement. You say, wait, what do I do with these 30 statements of wisdom? Well, teach them your kids. Uh, take one every day of the month. You take 30, and there's a 30... 30-day month, you can study one per, per day and just meditate on it, think about it, think about the application, the implication for your life, but just spend some time meditating and thinking on these 30 sayings of wisdom because they are rich. But here's number 19. Choose peers carefully. Choose peers carefully. Look what it says in chapter 24, verse 1. The Bible says, do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their minds devise violence, and their lips talk of trouble. Now, before I go any further, I want to pray. I said I was going to pray. I need to pray. We need God's help, don't we? So let's pray. Ask God to, to help our time, bless our time together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we're so grateful for your word. It's a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And Lord, I pray that you would use this study today to instruct us, to encourage us, to admonish us, to correct us, to help us, uh, to inspire us. And Lord, I pray you'd use this study today to give us just a deeper hunger for your word because we're reminded by the words of Jesus, quoted from the Old Testament, that man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So help us, Lord, to, to hunger for your word like a hungry person hungers for bread. And Lord, we'll thank you and praise you for that grace and for that activity and work in our lives. And we just ask that you would meet with us in these moments and not just with us, but Father, in the different Bible studies taking place, men's studies and women's studies that are happening right now. Uh, Lord, we pray for our, our age-graded ministries, Lord, preschool children, students. Father, pray that your hand would be upon those different ministries, that you would use these ministries to, to point the children in our church to Jesus and to encourage them and, and to help them to take the next step in their spiritual journeys. And Father, the, the choir that's meeting tonight, practicing tonight, I pray you would bless them and that even as they practice, Father, they would worship 
as they prepare to lead us in worship on Sunday. And Lord, we'll thank you and praise you for all of that grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, chapter 24 begins with, with the saying of wisdom, number 19, choose peers carefully. It says, do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. There are two things going on there. Number one, we see folks that are evil, not living for the Lord. We shouldn't envy them, okay? Why should we not envy them? Well, it says, verse 2, their minds devise violence, their lips talk of trouble. But not only should we, should we cease from envy, we should not desire to be around them because we know, 1 Corinthians 15, that bad company eventually corrupts what? Good morals, right? A little leaven leavens the whole loaf of bread. Uh, Proverbs 13 says that he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So we've got to be very careful about who our peers are. And I want you to hear me on this. This is not just for teenagers. Did you know adults can have peer pressure? Did you know that? Not, not just a teenage thing. Even as adults, we can have our lives influenced by ungodly people if we're not careful. So choose your peers wisely. Now, if you have people in your life that aren't living for the Lord, they're not following Jesus, your goal is to love them, to try to share truth with them, to try to live in a way that points them to Christ, to share the gospel with them. So you, you, you don't, you don't, you're not ugly to people that aren't, that aren't godly. You're not ugly to people that aren't following the Lord. You try to reach out to them and, and build bridges into their life, but you don't let them influence you. You have boundaries in your life. And the people that you allow to influence you are people that are godly, peers that are godly that will point you in the right direction. And so if you don't have some godly friends in your life, that needs to go to number one on your prayer list. God, give me some godly friends. Show me who they are. Lead me to them. Help me to be open and available to people you bring into my life. And, and allow me to, to put around me those folks, those peers that will really point me in the right direction. Choose peers carefully. You know, Paul had a Barnabas. David had a Jonathan. We need some folks in our lives that will support us and hold us accountable and, and help us to serve and honor the Lord. Proverbs says, iron sharpens iron. So one man sharpens another. So choose peers carefully. And if you don't have a godly peer group, pray for one. Pray for one. Pray that God would raise those people up and show you who those people are. And let me just tell you this. Even when God shows you those people, sometimes you have to make the first step. You have to initiate and open up your life. That's hard for some folks, to open up their life and really enter into a friendship or relationship. Sometimes you've got you to take the first step of, of opening up your life to let people know that you want them in your life. So number one, number 19, I'm sorry, choose peers carefully. Peer pressure is not just something that students experience. It's something that even adults experience. Choose peers carefully. Number 20 speaks of being founded and furnished. Founded and furnished. Look what it says in chapter 24, verses 3 and 4. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. And so what we see here is a metaphor that drives home the importance of wisdom. Now a little bit later we're going to see another metaphor that drives home the importance of wisdom. It's all through Proverbs. Wisdom is really, really important. God wants us to, to acquire it and to apply it because it is God's insight into life that helps us to live the right kind of lives. 
And so he says here that a house is founded, it's built, it's established, its rooms are filled by what? Verse 3. By wisdom. Wisdom is what builds the house. It makes it sound and sturdy and fills it up with the right kind of furnishing. And so here's the metaphor for your life. If you will seek God's wisdom, acquire it, apply it, your life will be like this house. Your life will be founded. It will be strong. It will be established. It will have a foundation. It will be built well. And your life will be filled up with the right kind of things. Now, it's interesting to note that this is the only time when a house is used as a metaphor for our spiritual lives. Over in Ephesians chapter 3, the Bible speaks of Jesus dwelling in our hearts, taking up a, the word there is the word for a dwelling place, a house. And, and the Bible reminds us that our hearts are like homes. We want Jesus to dwell in the home of our heart. But if we will live by wisdom, if we will take God's wisdom seriously and seek it out, and when we get it, live by it. Hey, look at me real quick. Did you know you can have God's wisdom and not live by it? Case in point, Solomon, Right? Why has this man ever walked face of the earth other than Jesus, who was the God-man? But Solomon asked for wisdom. God gave it to him. He was so wise, had all the wisdom at his fingertips, and yet he began make, to make very poor decisions. Read 1 Kings chapter 11. Claire's been reading the 1 Kings in her, in her Bible time, and she's been telling me, I just can't believe this guy. I mean, you know, 700 wives, 300 concubines, and now he's worshiping Baal, and all this. And he's, I just can't believe it. I mean, this is Solomon, Mr. Wise. And yet he's worshiping pagan gods, led astray by these women that he allowed to have influence in his life. And so we need to, we need to make sure that we acquire wisdom, but then apply it, that we live by it every day, founded and furnished. Your life will be founded and furnished if you live by wisdom. Here's number 21. I'm going kind of quick because I, got, I know I'll take a little bit longer, a little further down. Number 21 speaks of strength through counsel. Look in chapter 24, verse 5. A wise man is strong, and a man of knowledge increases power. It's talking about being strong, having power in your life. Now, how does that happen? Look what it says in verse 6. For by wise guidance you will wage war. Literally, make battle. And in abundance of counselors, there is victory. So, life is war, right? Another metaphor. Life is war. Spiritual war. It's, it's tough. Life is difficult. And we can only have the strength to face it and the wisdom to face it and win battles if, if we have wise counselors in our life. The Lord never intends for us, listen to me, to live the Christian life in isolation. He intends us to live the Christian life in community with other folks that can help us and help us to make wise decisions. Because when you get off over by yourself, when you live in isolation, you are in danger. Just like those Discovery Channel shows, National Geographic, whatever. You know, they're showing a herd of antelope, right? The antelope are running around the, the plains and they look, they look like they're having a, a good time on the African plains. And all of a sudden, one of the antelope gets sick or hurt, or maybe it's a young, and it gets left behind, and, and the herd leaves, and you know what's about to happen, right? It's not going to turn out good for the antelope. It's not. Which reminds me of another theory I have. 
Whenever you see a movie about dogs, it never turns out good for the dogs. Test that theory. You watch. It always ends up sad. Anyway, that's a whole different thing. Whenever you see an antelope by himself, you know it's not going to turn out good for the antelope, right? You, th- so then the camera pans, and what do you see? A line, right? Creeping, creeping about the pounce. Because when that antelope gets over by himself, he's in trouble. He's a target for the lion. Guess how the Bible describes Satan? 1 Peter 5, a roaring lion seeking those whom he can devour. And when we are off by ourselves, we are targets for the enemy. So we need folks around us to give us wise counsel. In, in abundance of counselors, there is victory. So I hope you never make any big decisions without an abundance of counselors in your life. Wise counselors, godly counselors. It will help you make good decisions. I hope that you are not trying to live the Christian life in isolation. I hope that you are seeking to live in community with people around you to protect you and help you do the right thing. So there's strength, power through counsel. Now that flies directly in the face of pride, doesn't it? We think we know it all, don't we? And when we ask somebody else about something, we're admitting we don't know it all. We're admitting someone may be offer some insight we don't yet have. And so for us to ask for help, for us to ask for counsel, is to, is to humble yourself. And, and frankly, a lot of people aren't willing to humble themselves. They're just, they'll just do it by themselves, make their own decisions, and get themselves inevitably into trouble. So that speaks of strength through counsel. Number 22. Why saying number 22 speaks of a fool out of his element? Look in chapter 24, verse 7. Wisdom is too exalted for a fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. So he's saying there that someone that is a fool, someone that's turned their back to God, will never get wisdom. They'll never understand the importance of it. They'll never want it. They'll never want to acquire it. It, They're just out of their element when it comes to wisdom because they have chosen their own pathway in life. And again, that is always a path that will end in destruction. You know, all through the book of Proverbs, you see this contrast. You see the wise one and the foolish one. And it's almost as if almost every chapter, Proverbs is saying, make your choice. Are you going to be wise? You're going to be foolish. You're going to do it God's way? You're going to do it your way. Make your choice. But a fool is out of his element when surrounded by wisdom because he doesn't want God's wisdom. He doesn't want that wisdom in his life, and he is not comfortable around wisdom. Number 23. Moving right along. Speaks of gaining an evil reputation. Look in chapter 24, verse 8. One who plans to do evil, men will call him a schemer. Or literally a a divisor of evil. The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to men. So we see here that... It's possible to gain an evil reputation. The Bible says that we ought to protect our reputation, that, that, that we ought to seek a good name. And if we find ourselves planning things that are evil, then we will gain a reputation of being evil. And we don't want that. We want to gain a reputation that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. And so make sure you don't avail yourselves to people that are scheming, that are involved in immoral, ungodly things and get you scheming with them 
any moral, ungodly things because you don't want that reputation. It dishonors the Lord and it will limit your impact in other people's lives. And so be careful that you don't gain an evil reputation. Number 24, I like this one. Never give up. Look at chapter 24, verse 10. This is going to be more relevant for those in this room because I'm going to assume that we don't have many people in here scheming evil things. I hope you don't, okay? Look at chapter 24, verse 10. The Bible says, If you are slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. So, saying you need strength, you need power in times of distress. That's when you need it. You don't want to give up when times get hard. You don't want to be... You don't want to face hardship with spiritual weakness in your life. You want to face hardship with spiritual fortitude. Never give up. Now, listen to me. Where does spiritual fortitude come from? How do you have spiritual strength to face life's trials? Where does spiritual strength come from? Talk to me. Okay, God's grace. Holy Spirit lives in you, gives you the strength. All right? God's grace is enabling help in your life. What else? God's Word? How does God's Word give you strength in the day of distress? Promise The promises of God? Yeah, right? Those promises to cling to, hold on to? How else? Per- perspective, right? You have the Word of God. Uh, it gives you perspective over the distress. You're, listen to me. If you know your Bible, you know that no matter what comes in your life, it's filtered through the sovereign hand of God, right? You know that. No matter how hard it is, God's still on His throne, Correct? And God takes those hardships and works them together for our ultimate good. And so if he's allowed it in your life, he allowed it for a reason. And he's going to use it in your life. And that brings a lot of different perspectives, doesn't it, to hardship. Bill, what would you say? Fellow believers give you that strength, that fortitude to stand in the day of distress. Another, You see all the, 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 the implications for, for community in this passage? We need each other to stand strong. What else? What else gives us strength in the day of distress? Prayer, that's right. Prayer is, a, is a, a, a way for us to go directly to the throne of grace. Hebrews 4 says to find mercy and help, when? In times of need. So yeah, prayer is an obvious avenue of finding strength when you are faced with distress. Let me suggest something else. How about memory? I was about to say that. I was, trying to say, I was going to say Thanksgiving or memory. But looking back, looking back on what God has done, that helps you, doesn't it? Because you see how God's been faithful through your past, it strengthens you in the present to face that distress. So when you go through hardship, it's not the first time you've gone through hardship, is it? You've gone through hardship in the past, and God was faithful back then. So you need to remind yourself that God's faithful. God has never done you wrong. He's always done what's best for you, always. And when you look back, and you have those, those, those memories, it strengthens you in the present. I, love, I quote this song all the time by Stephen Kirsch Chapman. He says, I may not see in front of me, but I can see for miles when I look over my shoulder. And Lord, it's clear you brought me here so faithful every step of the way. And so we want to have that spiritual fortitude. We should never give up. When Winston Churchill, the prime minister of Great Britain, was trying to lead his people through the, the dark days, the first, few, the first years of World War II, they were at war with Hitler's Germany, the Nazis. The 
the people of, of London were getting very discouraged. They were being bombed constantly by uh, the, the Nazis, and he uh, spoke, and he is a very famous speech. And in that speech, Winston Churchill said, Never give up. Never, never, never give up. And so if you're a child of God, never give up. When you face distress, don't give up. Just seek the spiritual fortitude you need to face it. Number 25. Rescue the perishing. This is powerful. Look what it says in chapter 24, verse 11. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here. Verse 11. Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts and does he not know it who keeps your soul and will he not render to man according to his work? And so he's saying there, when you see people being led to death, intervene and don't act like you don't know. Now, there are a couple different implications that come from these verses. First of all, I believe this, this verse has social implications. Social implications. When we see people being mistreated in society, people being oppressed by the powerful, Christians should desire to intervene and to help and to rescue and to be a part of the solution. So this, this verse, this saying of wisdom has social implications. If It says, deliver those who are being taken away to death. Now, all through the centuries, we've seen how evil humanity is, haven't we? And we've seen some things in history happen where those who knew better did not intervene. For example, I just mentioned the Nazis as Hitler rose to power. The Nazis rose to power in Germany in the 1930s. There was an interesting phenomenon happened. People who were believers in Christ, were turning their heads the other way. They just weren't dealing with the realities that were happening as Hitler began to gather the Jews and send them to concentration camps. Let me give you a couple examples. First comes from Martin Niemöller. He was a pastor in uh, Germany. And he shares this poem. It's, it's in a poetic form, but it's, it's haunting and it's chilling. He writes... First they came for the communists, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the socialists, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a socialist. Then they, the Nazis, came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Isn't that powerful? As, as Hitler rose to power and began to target different groups that he saw as enemies, those that should have spoken out did not speak out. By last, you know, there were some that did, but by and large, many did not. There's another story that comes from a lady named Penny Lee. She wrote about her childhood growing up as the Nazis rose to power. Here's what she wrote. A railroad track ran behind our small church. And each Sunday morning, we, we would hear the whistle from the distance and then the clacking of the wheels moving over the track. We became disturbed when one Sunday, we noticed cries coming from the train as it passed by. We grimly realized that the train was carrying Jews. They were like cattle in those cars, she writes. 
Week after week, that train whistle would blow. We would dread to hear the sound of those old wheels because we knew that the Jews would begin to cry to us as they passed our church. It was so terribly disturbing. We could do nothing to help these poor, miserable people, yet their screams tormented us. We knew exactly at what time that whistle would blow, and we decided the only way to keep from being so disturbed by the cries was to start singing our hymns. By the time the train came rumbling past the churchyard, we were singing at the top of our voices. If some of the screams reached our ears, we'd just sing a little louder until we could hear them no more. Years passed, and no one talks about it much anymore, but I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. I can still hear them crying out for help. God forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians, yet did nothing to intervene. is that a sad story? But things like that were happening in that day and time. Those who should have been taking the stand and rising up uh, were saying nothing and turning their head. Now, there were others, brave ones, uh, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you haven't read Bonhoeffer's biography, I, I, I highly recommend you read it. The one by Eric Metaxas. Great, great story of a Christian pastor in, that resisted the, the Nazis. But, uh, but there were many that said nothing. And this verse says, when you see those being taken away to death, you should intervene. It says, deliver those who are being taken away to death. And so this has so, so social implications. You see something horrible like this happening to a fellow human being, Christians should say, I want to do something. I, we should have that heart to want to do something, not just sing our hymns louder, right? And pretend it's not happening. And, and listen, I don't, I don't want to get political tonight. You know me better than that. I, I'm, not, I'm not sold out to the Republicans or the Democrats. But there's a Holocaust happening in our country right now. And it's called abortion. I mean, we're getting, what, 60 million have been killed in their mother's womb since Roe v. Wade? 60 million? 60 million? And, and sometimes I think, well, that's just a political issue. We'll let them, you know, fight that out, at, you know, in Congress and legislature and the Supreme Court and all of that kind of stuff. And we just kind of kind of put it out of our minds and take it off the the front burner and put it on the back burner, and we're just not horrified by it. And I just wonder why we're not horrified by it. I mean, think about that. Being taken away to death. And we should seek to deliver those who are defenseless, cannot help themselves. Now, I want to be quick to say, whenever I make a comment like that, that there, there's forgiveness uh, for people that have, uh, have uh, had an abortion. There's forgiveness available through Christ. I know people that have, that have met Christ and have, Christ changed their life and they've, they've dealt with that and, and Christ is helping them to get past that. There's always forgiveness in Christ, but it's just a sad reality in our nation and we ought to be horrified by it. We, we just ought to be horrified by it. And I'm not, I don't understand why I'm not more horrified by it more than I am. I don't understand why the church is not more horrified by it than I mean, we're singing our hymns, aren't we? Real loud. But what about those that are in their mother's womb that are that are killed and i believe our culture is making it easier and easier and easier for this to happen now there's the morning after pill there's no parental consent there's no it's just getting easier and easier and easier for people to live a life of convenience as they're involved in immorality and and kill a life in their womb and that that is a that is what's happening in our nation is a sign of a sick society i mean we're not well we're not well you can't look at that and say that our nation is healthy. 
You can't look at that and say that we don't deserve the judgment of God because, because we do. We do. And so, when we see that happening, we see these terrible, terrible things happening. Another thing is trafficking. There's human trafficking taking place in our country. And I read an article the other day about how much human trafficking takes place with innocent young people at things like the Super Bowl right here in our backyard. Just terrible, terrible stories of things that are happening right here in our nation. And there's trafficking going on all over the world. And Christians should say, that's not right. That shouldn't happen. We should, we should be speaking out with love and compassion and ferocity because we have the truth about the sanctity of life. And so I believe this verse has social implications. I also believe it has spiritual implications. Look what it says in verse Verse 11, deliver those who are being taken away to death. Did you know that every day, every day, you and I are around people that are headed for an eternity of death? If they die apart from Christ, they will spend eternity separated from God in that awful place called hell. The Bible calls that the second death. If that's true, if we see people, like it says here, taken away to death, heading for eternity separated from God, should we as Christians not want to deliver them? Do you see the spiritual application and implication there that we ought to say, hey, let's, let's try to lead these people to life. Let's share with them there's good news so they don't have to go to the place of death. They can go to the place of eternal and abundant life that's only found in Christ. And so this is a very convicting verse. It really is. What are you and I doing? What are you and I doing to deliver those who are being taken away to death. We can't say, verse 12, we can't say we didn't know what was happening. We can't play the ignorance card because look what it says. Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? God knows we know. God knows we know what's going on and he'll hold us accountable for what we did or did not do. And so do we want to sing our hymns loud? But yes, but not to drown out the sound of the hurting and the broken and those being led away to disaster and destruction. We want to sing our hymns and praise to God, but then we want to reach out our hands to those that need a touch from the body of Christ. Amen? That's number 25. Pretty heavy, but it's a powerful verse. Number 26. Number 26. Speaks of the sweet satisfaction of wisdom. Another metaphor. It talks about how important wisdom is. Look in chapter 24, verse 13. My son, eat honey, for it is good. Yes, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is thus for your soul. If you find it, then there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. And so he, he compares acquiring wisdom to eating sweets. Now, this is a biblical rationale for you to eat sweets. Look what it says. Verse 13, my son, eat honey. For it is good. Yes, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. So you have a biblical rationale to eat sweets. You heard it here first. Just, I'm your pastor. I love you. I want you to know these things. All right? You're sitting there tonight watching Duck Dynasty. Go to the pantry. I'm kidding. Don't, don't, don't eat unhealthy. But, but it says there that sweets are good. We know sweets are good. Look in verse 14. Know that wisdom is thus for your soul. Just like sweets taste so good, we love them, that's what wisdom is for our soul. It is satisfying to our soul. If you find it, there will be a future. Your hope will not be cut off. People that acquire and apply wisdom have a bright future ahead of them because they're doing things God's way. So the 
The 26th saying of wisdom is, is about the sweet satisfaction of wisdom. It really is sweet when you acquire God's wisdom in your life. It tastes really, really good. Number 27, I like this one, speaks of the resilience of the righteous. This is similar to the one earlier where we said never give up. But look what it says in verse 20, uh, chapter 24, verse 15. Do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not destroy its resting place. Why? A righteous man falls seven times and what? Rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. He's saying here that there's something about a man that knows the Lord. There's, I love this. There's a built-in resilience, a God-given resilience for the man and the woman that is righteous. God gives them what they need to face hardship, to face opposition, to face trials, to face tribulations. The resilience of the righteous. I don't know how many of you heard this story, but during the summer, Rick Warren, very well-known a pastor in California, Saddleback Church, lost his son. His son committed suicide. His son struggled. I think he was in his late 20s. He struggled uh, through his life with mental illness. And they lost him uh, in this summer. And it was a very difficult time, as you can imagine, for the Warren family. And, and Rick Warren took, you know, I think a couple months off. And I saw a clip when he came back to the church for the first time to, to preach. And he was, he was preaching to his church, and he said something that really stuck with me. And I had to kind of think about it, but the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, I really like that. He talked about the, he talked about the, the spiritual strength of his family. He's talking about his wife and his, his other kids and his extended family and how their faith was so strong through all of this. They were clinging to their faith. And his daughter made a comment. She said, Dad, she said, Satan has messed with the wrong family. And I thought, I like that. What if we have such a resilience and strength that when Satan messes with us, he's messed up? Because we get back up, and we, quit, we keep serving, and we, and we keep honoring the Lord, and we keep letting him use our life. And when listen, when the righteous gets back up, Satan loses, doesn't he? He wants to keep you down. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your marriage, your kids, your, your family, your home, your workplace. He wants, he's a destroyer. But when you get back up, there's power in that. There's power in that. And so the righteous, I love that, is resilient. The righteous man falls seven times and rises again. So if you fall, get back up. Amen? Let God give you the strength you need to do battle with the enemy. The resilience of the righteous. Number 28, this is a good one, particularly during football season. Never gloat. Never gloat. Look at chapter 24. I'm going to ask you some, some piercing questions in just a moment. Chapter 24, verse 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Or the Lord will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. Implications towards you. So never gloat. Now let me ask you a question. Let's kind of see if this is an issue in our hearts. On a less serious scale. How many of you... Oh, I'll ask, ask the state fans first. How many of the state fans watched the Ole Miss-Vanderbilt game last Thursday? First game of the season? Okay. How many of you were glad when Vanderbilt scored that touchdown with like a minute left? How many? Be, be honest. Okay. Okay. That's gloating, right? Then Ole Miss came back and they won. We know that. Okay. Now, let's, let's Ole Miss fans. Got to be honest, all right? This, God's in this place. 
When Mississippi State only scored three points against Oklahoma State, how many, how many thought, yes, raise your hand if you, if you thought that was a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that, that's gloating. That's gloating. Now, that's silly, that's football, but I want you to know that tendency's there in all of our hearts, isn't it? On a, on a much more serious scale. When we see people that we don't like or rub us the wrong way and things don't go right for them, we're prone to gloat. When our enemies fall, we're prone to rejoice. I came across a word years ago, and it's a great word. I'm going to use it on you so you can use this for trivia in your office. All right, here's the word. The word is schadenfreude. I'm going to spell it for you. Write it down. S-C-H-A-D-E-N-F-R-E-U-D-E. S-C-H-A-D-E-N-F-R-E-U-D-E. It's a German word. You know what the word schadenfreude means? It means pleasure derived by someone from another person's misfortune. That's schadenfreude. That's gloating. Right? Now, let me, let me just apply this to the Bible Belt. Show you how this kind of plays out in Christian folk in the Bible Belt. Did you know that there's a spirit of competition among churches? Did you know that? Now, we know the right answers, right? We're all on the same team, you know, rah, rah, rah. But are we really cheering for the churches down the road? Do we really want what's best? And see, what if God chose us in revival to Hernando, but he chose another church to do it? How'd that make you feel? We're praying for revival, right? Ask God to do great things here. What, what if he chose another church? God's sovereign. He can do that, right? Would you rejoice? When a church splits, they have problems. You hear they're having problems. Is it like, well, hey, you need to come to my church because we got it going on. Our church is... Or does your heart break for the church? A lot of times we can find ourselves rejoicing over the wrong things and hearts not being broken by things that should break our hearts. And so we should not gloat. In church life, we, we we need to banish the spirit of competition. And I'm telling you, it's alive and well because I'm a preacher. I'm around preachers and... You know, you go to the conventions or the conferences, and, and one of the questions is, how many of y'all running now? How many of y'all running now? How many of y'all running? You know, and so, so people start drawing lines. Well, we're running this many, we're running this many. We're running. And so, you know, the guy that has the, mo- the, the most coming to church is, the, you know, the king of the hill, right? That's how, you, that's how it works. You know, that's just, that's just fleshly, sinful competition, is it not? Our church is more than your church, you know. We need to be careful. We need to be careful. And not gloat over someone else suffering hardship or going through difficult times. God is not honored by that. He says he'll turn his anger from them to you. All right? Number 29. Saying number 29. Don't be captivated by wickedness. Don't be captivated by wickedness. Look in chapter 24, verse 19. Do not fret because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked. For there will be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. So do not fret because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked. So we should not be captivated by those who are ungodly. Why? Look what it says in the next verse. For there will be no future for the evil man. You ever see someone that is ungodly and it seems like they have it all? Be honest, have you ever seen someone like that? I mean, they're, li- they're having a great life, living it up, easy life, things are going great for them. But what he's saying here is this. Don't look at their life, look at their future. 
The future is not bright for those that have turned their back to Jesus. Right? Not bright. So don't look at someone's life and say, oh, they had these things, so their life is good, my life is bad. Look at their future. That's the way you evaluate someone's life in the here and now. Where are they headed? What's their future look like? So don't envy the wicked because their future's destruction. Why would you envy that? Yeah, they look like they have it all, but they're headed for the, 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 the destruction of the enemy. Why would you envy that? So we've got to learn not to be captivated by wickedness. But what's happened is we are so saturated with media that it captivates us, doesn't it? It captivates us. The TV shows, the movies, the websites, we're just, we're just enamored by, by these lifestyles that these people are living and what they look like and what they're doing and how much money they're making. We're just captivated by it. And the Bible says, don't be captivated by that. Why would you be envious of those that are ungodly? It just doesn't make good sense. And so ask yourself this question. What captivates me? What captivates me? And if the answer is anything other than the gospel, Jesus, the cross, the empty tomb, our holy, sovereign, triune God, if anything other than the Lord captivates you, then you need to do a a checkup, a spiritual checkup, and say, I don't want to be captivated by wicked things, the things of this world. And by the way, our world is, is, does a great job of making those things look so alluring. This body type, you know, this, this lifestyle, this kind of money, this kind of fame. The world makes it look so alluring. But don't look at it, look at the, the end result. The end result. Don't be captivated by, and listen, help your kids not to be captivated by wickedness. It's out there, and it'll, it'll, it'll get their attention. So you've got to help them to see the, the implications of the wicked lifestyle. Number 30, and we'll finish up here. This speaks of the godly citizen. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here as well. The godly citizen. Look what it says in chapter 24, verses 21 and 22. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those who are given to change, for their calamity will rise suddenly who knows the ruin that comes from both of them. So it here mentions the, the last saying of the 30 sayings of wisdom, and it says here, be a godly citizen. Fear the Lord, that's godly. Honor the king, that's being a good citizen of your nation. Honor your leadership. Now, let me just say, just very quickly, some things about citizenship. What it means to be a good citizen. Christians should be the best citizens the nation has. Because the Bible tells us to. Let me talk to you about what it means to be a good citizen in the nation God has you in. First of all, you need to fear God. Fear God. It says there, verse 21, my son, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Same thing over in 1 Peter chapter 2. Fear the Lord. Honor the king. Fear the Lord. And so number one, if you're going to be a good citizen, it means that, that God is your highest allegiance. We're going to talk about submitting to government in a few moments and submitting to leadership in a few moments. But you never submit to the government or leadership when what they're asking you to do would cause you to disobey God. God is your highest allegiance. He comes first. So fear God. And again, men, advertisement in the morning, 6 a.m., we're going to talk about what it means to fear God. Okay? Number two, love your country. Love your country. Honor the king. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Reverence the king. Look what it says over in 1 Peter. I'll show you this in 1 Peter. 
1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Back at the verse 16. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Honor the king. So there's this idea in Scripture that there is a, a, a sense of nationalistic pride. We live in a country, we have leadership, we honor that king, we have, we have pride in the nation we live in. I believe that speaks of, of, a, of a, a degree of patriotism. We ought to be patriotic. Christians should be patriotic. They should love their country and want what's best for their country. So what does it mean to be a good citizen? Fear God, love your country. Third, respect the government and don't shoot the mailman. Pay taxes. The Bible tells you to do that. Do you know that? Turn to Romans 13 with me. Romans 13. Verse 1. The Bible says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, they, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. If you want to have no fear of authority, do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God, authority in our nation, is a Minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So a government should reward the good and punish the evil to keep order in society. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For Because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And so we're told here to submit to the authority of, of a nation and to be a part of the, the paying of taxes to, uh, that provides services for your life. And so we're to fear God, love our country, respect the government, and pay taxes. Now I would add to that, be a part of the process, because you may say, oh, I don't agree with how, many, how much tax we pay or, or what our tax money is going to will be a part of the process. I, I, don't, I, I can't understand a Christian that never votes. I don't get that. How are you part of the process if you don't vote? How can you, have a, how can you say anything about pro-life or, or sanctity of life or just war or just taxing? How can you say anything about that if you don't vote? Right? Just a thought. So be a part of the process. And then, here's the last thing, respect and pray for your leaders. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, New Testament. Talking about being a good citizen. The Bible says in verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So we are commanded in Scripture to pray for those who are in positions of leadership. I believe this has implications for those on the local leadership level, those on the state level, those on the national level. We should be praying for those who are leaders in our nation and praying for their spiritual condition and praying that God would 
give them wisdom and surround them with wise people so they can make good, uh, righteous decisions and not poor, ungodly, wrong decisions. And so, what does it mean to be a good citizen? Fear God, love your country, respect the government, pay taxes, be part of the process, respect and pray for your leaders. And Proverbs says, listen, that, that's kind of citizens you should be. Fear God, fear the king. First Peter says, fear God, honor the king, be a godly citizen. So those are the 30 statements of wisdom that we find in the book of Proverbs. 30 statements. And the, again, these 30 things are meant to be a contrast to the Egyptian 30 sayings, a minimope. And to say, hey, the Egyptians have their wisdom, but the people of God have their wisdom. We have some things that we've learned from God's insight that we want to hold up and say, live by these principles. And I would dare say that if you'll take these 30 things and, and really live by these principles, you'll live a life that honors the Lord. I really believe that. So let's teach them to our kids and let's learn them and meditate on them because they are very, very important.